This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, Not Even a Murmur by Terry Collette and The Bath Chair by Maureen Wilkinson. We're well into our third year of podcasting short stories, and that's every month, come hell or high water. Bound Off is always looking for great stories. Visit our website at boundoff.com to find our submission guidelines. While there, check out our news blog. You can also find links to us on Facebook and MySpace. Also on our website is the Bound Off Bookstore, in affiliation with Amazon. You can find books by past Bound Off contributors such as Don't Mean Nothing, Short Stories of Vietnam by Susan O'Neill, and You Are a Little Bit Happier Than I Am by Tao Lin. Not Even a Murmur, written by Terry Collette, read by Kelly Shriver. Listening time, 2 minutes, 37 seconds. Not Even a Murmur, by Terry Collette. You take the monochrome photograph from the desk, look at it, and wonder if your mother is amongst the women shown there behind the barbed wire. There are seven women shown, all in black and white, with that haunted look about them. The man who has left the photograph on the desk asks you to look at it, see if your mother is there. If she is, then he will try to see what became of the women shown. He is a humorless man, thin-faced, thin-lipped, with dark, cold eyes that seem to go through you, as they did in the camp where you were all those years. You take the photograph to the window for better light and to ease the cramp in your leg, which began while the man was speaking to you, but you didn't want to rise then and rub it in case he thought things about you and that would have made you blush. You rub your leg as you walk to the window, feel the muscles ease as you walk. The light from outside the window gives the photograph a different reality. You feel your emotions clamping your throat, your stomach tightens, you feel nauseous. You know these women, these types of women. They are victims. You saw so much of it at the camp that you feel you see them even in your nightmares. The woman on the right, maybe, you muse, rubbing your thumb over her face as if you wanted to feel her again but you are unsure. The picture is not clear enough. You bring the photograph up to your eyes, peer hard, try to make up your mind. You remember her as a child would, how she would lift you up, kiss your cheek, say things to you, show you to your papa. He would laugh and smile at you. Then the soldiers came. You were all taken off in lorries and trains, a long journey, sickness, smells, tiredness, and your grandpapa was taken off. You never saw him again. Your grandmama just stared at the floor as if her soul had been ripped out. The women in the photograph look out at you. You stare back, want to speak to the woman in the picture who may have been your mother, want to ask her if she missed you when you were torn from her side, want to say you loved her and still do, how you want her back again. But you say nothing, not even a murmur, not even a sigh. No, it is not her, you say to yourself. It is not her. No? Another voice asks inside your head. No, you are certain. It isn't she there amongst those women. Mother would have smiled back. Mother would have waved from behind the barbed wire. The end. Terry Collette is a 60-year-old poet who has been writing since 1972. He has had two slim volumes of poems published in 1974 and 1978. Since that time, he has had poems and short stories printed in anthologies, 
magazines, and newspapers. He is married with eight children and eight grandchildren. The Bath Chair, written by Maureen Wilkinson, read by Mark Rushton, listening time, 11 minutes. The Bath Chair, by M. Wilkinson. Cheney sat upright in the Victorian bath chair, his hands placed loosely on cane armrests, brittle with age. His head lolled sideways onto a thin shoulder, and his labored breath whistled like rustling leaves through flattened nostrils. Cheney's dark eyes stared impassively through the open doorway of the derelict house. Gus had dragged the chair up from the basement many months before and placed his brother's broken body in its depths. Outside on the veranda, ivy wrapped tenacious stems around the supporting balustrades. Green-fingered shoots probed broken windows, crept over sills, explored the walls of empty upper rooms. Frayed wire hung from the light fitting, and rotting floorboards bared jagged teeth. Daylight flooded through the broken roof in scraps of late summer brightness. A robin flapped and twirled in a shaft of light, seeking a way out. November brought the first of the frost. Gus made his way across broken asphalt. A gray canvas rucksack pulled heavily at his shoulder, and he adjusted it with cold, stiff fingers. A drop in temperature, sugar-frosted branches of overgrown bushes stationed along what had once been the driveway to the house. He mounted the veranda, stepped into the living room, and dropped the rucksack on the floor. Propped in the bath chair, Cheney stared with yellow, crusted eyes at a peeling wall. Gus moved to his brother's side and put his mouth against the sunken cheek. Hi, I'm back, and I've got some good news for you. I'm getting married next week, Cheney. Don't congratulate me. It's not a love match. Oh, yes, I know you can't come, not with that poor crushed head. You'd frighten the guests, but you'll be there in spirit, won't you? The zip on his padded jacket whispered as Gus pulled it down and slid his hand into his jeans pocket. He waved a box of matches in his brother's face. Today is another special day. It's your birthday. Did you know that? A double celebration, then. I brought a cake. Don't you think that was thoughtful? We'll have a party. He eyed the gaunt figure in the bath chair and thought he saw a glimmer in the dead stare. Don't worry, they'll only be us. I know you wouldn't want anyone to see you. Gus laid his hand on his brother's tangled hair. Its texture matched the brown horse hair that hung through rents in an old sofa, the only furnishing in the bleak room. How's your head today? He ran his fingers across the misshapen skull. You look cold. I'll get that fire going. Gus squatted in front of the marble fireplace and laid dried sticks over a nest of paper. He struck a match, poked it into the base, and it flared immediately. The sticks crackled, and smoke spiraled up into the wide chimney breast. There you go. Now I'd better bring in some more wood. You won't go away, will you? A light flurry of snow coated the steps of the veranda and lay across the neat wood pile stacked against the side of the house. He gathered a few logs and frowned as snow slid from the surface and soaked the front of his shirt. Gus shivered and hurried back inside. With the fire underway, the young man crossed the room, turned the bath chair away from the wall, and pushed it up to the fire. He cocked his head to one side and rubbed his hands together. Right, let's get out the birthday cake. Crouched at his brother's feet, 
Gus delved into the rucksack and pulled out a square box. Setting it down on the fire surround, he lifted the lid and withdrew a pink and white iced cake. His eyes flicked to his brother's crushed face. I see you're impressed. There's candles in here somewhere. He bent back over the bag, rummaged inside, and withdrew some pink candles. There's only ten, I'm afraid, but you won't know the difference anyway, will you? Mom would have made sure there were thirty and sung happy birthday as you blew them out. But Mom thinks you're dead, washed out to sea, drowned. Never mind, I'll blow them out for you. Gus brought out a flask of coffee and some paper plates. He cut a slice of cake into small pieces and pulled down his brother's chin. In it goes. He forced the cake between Cheney's teeth. Chew carefully. We don't want to choke, do we? With a satisfied smile, he watched his brother's jaw move. Spittle mixed with crumbs dribbled from the corners of Cheney's mouth. Gus poured coffee into a plastic cup and checked with his lips that it wasn't too hot before he held it to Cheney's mouth. Happy birthday, dear brother, he whispered softly. The sofa groaned as Gus threw his lean body onto the sagging springs. Dust motes rose and sprinkled the firelight with silver points, ancient fireflies dancing into the gathering dusk. I'll tell you a story. You'll like that, won't you? Light flickered in Cheney's eyes and Gus laughed. You're excited now. You love this story, don't you? He laced his fingers across his chest and closed his eyes. Floorboard creaked overhead as if some phantom searched the room above. From beyond the wooded area outside, a dog barked, the sound muffled by the distance. Okay. Once upon a time, there were two brothers who lived on a hill. That's how we start, isn't it? Gus held up a finger as though to silence an impending answer. One was shy and quiet. Nobody really noticed him. The other brother was friendly and outgoing, but he could be very naughty, and yet everyone loved him. Gus looked at the still figure in the bath chair. Shall we give them names, just for fun? All right, then. We'll call them Mr. Shy and Mr. Naughty. Mr. Naughty? Why, that could be you, Cheney, couldn't it? You used to be very naughty sometimes. Well, Mr. Naughty found himself a girlfriend. One day, he and Miss Girlfriend had a big fight, and the girlfriend ran to Mr. Shy and cried on his shoulder. Gus fished a cigarette from the top pocket of his jacket, lit it, and sucked the smoke deep into his lungs. He flicked the spent match into the fire and cocked his head to one side. I don't suppose you can remember how, in a moment like that, things can happen. How a kiss of comfort turns to passion. Mr. Naughty came back and caught them fucking. Miss Girlfriend said it was a terrible mistake. Yes, that's what she said. It was all a terrible mistake. The sofa groaned again as Gus got up and ground the half-smoked cigarette under his heel. He put his face close to Cheney's ear. And Mr. Naughty forgave her. What do you think of that? Wasn't Mr. Naughty a nice guy? He walked to the window. It's snowing out there, Cheney. Remember when we were kids? How we loved to play in the snow? He looked back over his shoulder. Mr. Naughty forgave her, but he never forgave his brother. He wanted Mr. Shy to lie awake at night, wondering what Mr. Naughty would do to him. Gus turned from the door, his face twisted, his eyes blazing, until one night, a Ford with brake fluid pouring out from underneath, flew down the hill, and I watched it as it went over the edge into the ravine. 
watched it bounce and turn before it hit the river and floated away. Gus leaned down and put his mouth close to his brother's ear and breathed in the odor of sour skin. But you weren't in it. You were flung out onto the rocks. I scrambled down and saw your crushed skull, but you were alive. Then I remembered this place. What fun to watch you die slowly, even better than I'd planned. Outside, the wind blew harder, and snowflakes drifted like confetti through the broken panes. Gus sauntered over to the door and opened it. The fire crackled and threw billows of gray, wood-scented clouds into the air. He turned back and gazed at Cheney. What did you say? He cocked his head to one side, a slight smile, played about tight lips. Why did I do it? He walked back to the bath chair, leaned over and laid his hands on his brother's shoulders. It wasn't just about the girlfriend, although she lied when she said it was a mistake. You should have heard her groan and call out for more. I wouldn't call that a mistake, would you? No. And this will make you laugh, Cheney. I was sick of hearing what a wonderful brother I had. How clever and how charming he was. Gus gave a short laugh and rage spilled into his voice. You aren't so damn charming now, are you? Gus grasped the handle and tipped the bath chair. He wheeled it awkwardly over bare, uneven floorboards. The chair squeaked and clicked in protest as the handle, unguided, swung to the left and jammed into the doorway. Fuck, fuck, Gus muttered under his breath and pulled the chair back. His jaw tight with irritation, he maneuvered it through the open door and bumped down the veranda steps. Cheney slid forward, his feet trailed along the ground. Snow gathered on his bare insteps. His brother lifted each foot, wiped it gently, and placed it back in the footrest. Look up at the sky, Cheney. It's snowing. Don't you just love the snow? If you weren't a veggie, we could play snowballs. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, it's your girlfriend I'm marrying. So you see, Mr. Shy won in the end. The good guy always wins in the end. I won't see you for a while. I expect I'll be busy in the bedroom. But don't worry, I'll be back. Snow crunched under Gus's feet as he labored along the path to the derelict house. Heavy gray skies threatened another downfall, and he shivered. In the garden, the bath chair was where he'd left it weeks before. Cheney sat upright, a white figure hidden beneath snowflakes. Gus removed his mittens and wiped the snow from the blue face. Snot icicles hung from Cheney's nose. Dead eyes gazed out at him, under eyelids frozen half open. Gus stepped back and scrutinized the snow-covered remains of his brother, and a smile lifted the corners of his lips. "'Oh, Mr. Naughty, how nice! You've made a snowman!' The End Maureen Wilkinson lives in the United Kingdom. She has been told she has a warped sense of humor. It is when walking her German shepherd her mind travels its own strange paths. Thanks for listening to Bound Off, copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for more information.